I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Danny Hillis is, uh, every now and then one of these events bears direct relation to the Long Now Foundation. Uh, Brian Eno started uh, this series last November with a description of what he meant by the Long Now, the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years. The core project of the Long Now, the really the maypole around which half a dozen other projects basically dance and sing and cavort and wrap their multicolored tape, is, uh, is this. Is, this is the prototype of the 10,000-year clock. It is the idea around which the foundation originally took shape, and it is the idea and the practice around which the foundation continues to take shape. It has got so many levels of uh, horrendously delightful design problems that it is the the realm of discipline which is keeping this whole operation somewhat honest. Uh, it's a basically impossible, uh, tremendously ambitious undertaking. But fortunately, Hillis is an engineer and a scientist, but an artist disguised as an engineer. And this will be one of the uh, great works of land art. Uh, it's also pushing horology, which is the building of clocks, the designing of clocks, uh, into a new generation, and that's uh, not happened for a while. Please welcome Danny Hillis. I've never been accused of being an artist before. Um, I don't think I am, actually. Um, and in fact, I've been kind of dreading this talk for kind of that reason, because I've got all of these problems I'm trying to solve um, for the clock. And so having to give a progress report when you know you don't have very good answers to a lot of the problem is a sort of painful experience. And I found that there were a lot of things that I wanted to talk about, but they probably wouldn't have been the things that you wanted to listen to. Um, so, in fact, the reason I was dreading it is because there's a set of questions that I always get asked about the clock, which I don't necessarily have very good answers to. But I figured that I would try to organize the clock around those questions anyway and just admit the degrees to which... Some of them I actually have some answers to that I, that I like. Um, some of them I don't, but you all will ask them of me eventually anyway, so I might as well get them out of the way in the beginning. So this is the list of the, the questions I most normally get asked about the clock. And um, I will use this as an outline in, in going through the talk, really starting with why am I doing this? And that's the sort of test question, because I find... Based on the answer to that, I lose half my audience immediately. Now, it's, it's actually, you, you all are pre-qualified, so you're presumably not in the half that goes away when they hear that, that answer. But, but one of the things that I've noticed about the clock project is people are very binary as to the reaction to it. 
They kind of either find it interesting or not. There's very little in between. So about half the people that I describe it to just kind of glaze over and think, wow, that's a really dumb thing to be doing, and that's the end of the conversation. Um, but there's another set of people that it somehow tickles some idea in their minds, and usually something they've already been thinking about, and they want to know more about it, and they kind of go on to the next one. So, so let me tell you how I got started with this project. Um, I've always been a kind of a future-oriented person. This is partly because I grew up, my uh, father studied hepatitis, so I grew up going from one hepatitis epidemic to another, which is usually a war going on in, where there's a hepatitis epidemic. So I could never go back to any of the places that I had sort of grew up in. And so for me, the past was kind of always kind of just being destroyed while I was, while I was there. And that sort of caused me to be dream about the future, and the future was in some sense a, a constant thing. It was room for me to dream. And, and one thing that I noticed um, sometime around the 19, early 1990s was that the future seemed to be shrinking. See, when I had grown up as a kid in the, in the 1960s, the future was way out in the year 2000. and People really sat around and talked about you know, what 2001 would be like and you know, what, how people would live and how people would think and how people would act and would this be possible and so on. And it was a, really a, it was an active topic of discussion. And by the time it got to be about 1990, people were still talking about what the year 2000 was going to be like. And I kind of realized that the future had been shrinking by one year per year for my entire life. And at first I thought this was just some mental barrier of the millennium. But I began to realize actually there's something more fundamental that was going on, which is that things were changing so fast, so much was fluid. Things, Moore's law was changing technology, politics was changing, you know, the maps were literally being redrawn during my lifetime. That nothing seemed that constant. And that therefore people really stopped thinking about the future because in some sense they stopped being able to think about it or they stopped believing in it. And that took away from everybody that kind of room to dream because if you can only think about what's possible in the part of the future that you can see in the next 10 years, well, then that limits the set of things that are possible. So all kinds of things become impossible if you're only thinking about kind of 10-year time frames. And the, and the story that really got me going, which I'm sure that you've probably heard at these uh, seminars before, but I'm going to repeat it because... It is kind of the story for the Long Now Foundation, which is the story about the, the oak beams in the, uh, in the uh, New College at Oxford. And um, New College, when, when was New College founded, Stuart? The New College at Oxford, 14th century. Okay, it was founded 15th century, which is why they call it New College at Oxford. And when they built the common rooms, they built it with these great big oak beams. And sometime this century, they were doing a renovation, and it came time to replace the oak beams at New College. And of course, by then, you couldn't just go down to the lumber yards and buy 40-foot oak beams. And so they started asking around where they could get some, and they realized that Oxford owned some, some forests. And so they called up the Oxford Forester and said, do you have any big oak trees that we could use? 
And the answer was, yeah, we have the oak trees that were planted to replace the beams in the new college common hall. You know, <laughs> when I heard that story, I realized, you know, that was, that's a way of thinking that you just can't imagine today. You know, you cannot concede that when they built this building, they planted some oak trees or some cement trees or something. I don't know. Um, you know, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. It has, you know, the return on investment would never make sense. But somehow we've really lost something that we don't have that kind of thinking. Because we don't believe in the future enough to plant the acorns today. And so I wanted for me, just for me personally, an excuse to think about a longer future, to stretch out my own thought. And, and to be honest, I mean, I didn't have the lofty goals of the Long Now Foundation in mind. I mean, the Long Now Foundation, I think, was Stuart recognizing that this is actually a useful way for the world to think. It wouldn't it be better if the world thought that way? But I originally was just doing it for a very personal reason that I wanted an excuse to think about that. I wanted some way to get sort of out of this 10-year short-term thinking. And so being an engineer, of course, I thought about what could I engineer? And a clock seemed very natural. So I started thinking about it. And eventually I started thinking about it enough that I started admitting to my friends I was thinking about it. And started discovering this effect, which was most of them sort of glazed over like I kind of expected them to. But the surprising effect was that a set of people, like Stuart and Kevin Kelly and a bunch of people that have become part of the Long Now Foundation, have got it and said, oh yeah, you know, I've been thinking something kind of like that, or that reminds me of this. And it started a conversation that was really interesting. So that's why I'm doing it, because it's been a great conversation. And it really has given me that kind of thinking. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a, in a little bit about how it does it. But when I started, I didn't have any idea, well, what does a clock mean? And so I, I tried to think of all kinds of different clocks that you might do. And you know, being an electrical engineer, of course, I first thought about electronics, but realized electronics might just be a passing fad. And you know, maybe there is no electronics in a century. Um, we're on to something else. I thought of things that worked on uh, physical principles, like, for instance, building a clock into a piece of stone and putting it under a waterfall and letting it wash away and expose the clock over time. Or things that involved, um, for instance, radioactive decay, releasing neutrons and the weight changing over time. And a lot of those seemed wrong for various reasons. For instance, the radioactive decay seemed to me very depressing. Some things seem wrong because of the way that humans interacted with them. I thought about putting things in space that would orbit around the Earth, and, and people could see them, but they're sort of away from people. They're not, I mean, they're nice, but we've already got the planets, and you know, it's not clear we need any more of them. Um, so in thinking about lots of different alternate designs like that, and I could spend the whole talk sort of talking about the alternate designs. What I sort of abstracted from looking at the ones I liked and the ones I didn't was a set of principles of sort of what would make a good clock design. And this, this set of principles I really started with before I had any thought of the clock. And it's actually held up pretty well. Um, of course, I wanted it to be long-lived. It had to be something that could really plausibly last for 10,000 years. Not necessarily was guaranteed to, but at least it couldn't be not guaranteed not to. That makes sense. 
Um, it needed to be maintainable. If I looked at things that lasted, they lasted because people took care of them. So people have to be able to take care of it. Sort of without the instruction manual, you have to know what to do to it to take care of it. Um, and so that without the instruction manual is very important because there's some things that you can come up to and see how they work, like a mechanical cathedral clock. You kind of look at it and figure out how to fix it. The other things like a piece of electronics or something that involves some special material like radioactive decay, which is very subtle figuring out how it works. In fact, a lot of things that get broken get broken because somebody tries to fix them without understanding how it works. So it's in some sense, it had to be self-documenting. And the other thing that it turns out the things that last last because people continue to care about them. And people continue, the reasons people care about them change over time. And sort of what people expect of them changes over time. So good things actually evolve along with people. And I mean, for instance, Stuart wrote a, a, a book about how good buildings evolve. They change from when they're designed. Um, but that's true of good machines. So if you look at, for instance, uh, a, the oldest clocks that work now, they're actually very different than the clocks that they were originally designed to be. For instance, they got updated with the pendulums where, when Galileo discovered that pendulums were constant and they, they were sort of retrofitted with that idea and so on. So it had to be a design that lent itself to that. And then second of all, because I actually wanted to build this thing, I didn't want it to be just an abstract exercise. I needed to be able to build models of it and replicate it. So I needed to be able to build it on a small scale, then later build it on a big scale. And, and, and so I wanted some design that didn't require some supreme giant effort like launching a satellite just to get started. But in fact, I could build little models and, and keep working. So all of that led me to building a mechanical clock, a complete straight mechanical design that could be built essentially out of Bronze Age technology of pieces of metal molded or cut into shapes and um, could be understood just by looking at it and fixed by basically anybody with an anvil and a forge. Um, and that, so that's what I would like to achieve is something like that. Um, when you, and, and that led to this design that you see, see up here. And this was the first prototype design. But it, it has some things about it that are very different than a normal clock. And I won't go too much into this prototype because I, I more want to talk about the whole sequence of things that I've done. But just to give you a sense, this has a, a scheme of weights going down is how it's powered. But the most interesting thing about it is this part here, which is basically a digital computer, but it's a mechanical digital computer where the ones and zeros are represented by levers. So that it can actually do a very complex calculation that you need to do to convert the basic pulse of time into days and minutes and calendar positions and the positions of the sun and the moon and things like that. So this is a mechanical computer that drives this face. And the face is designed to make sense to somebody coming along that really doesn't know our calendar system, although it does actually display our calendar system. It actually does display what time it is in a kind of universal system. So every culture that, every culture that we know of actually keeps tracks of days and months and years. Those seem to be universal time things. Now, there are other things like weeks, which are more culturally dependent. Um, the different cultures have had different notions of a week. But day, month, year are sort of given to us by the planets, and we may define them just a little bit differently as to how many days are in a month. 
But the basic idea of counting moons is a cultural universal. So that's the fundamental things that this displays. Now it turns out there's also another cycle that um, any culture that's sophisticated enough to develop mathematics has noticed, which is that there's another cycle in the sky which we're less aware of because we don't see the stars so much. But that is the precession of the Earth's axis. So if you look up into the night sky, it's, it's very obvious if you slept under the stars that they're spinning around. And they, of course, spin around Polaris. The interesting thing, though, is that they haven't always spun around Polaris. In fact, they don't exactly spin around Polaris. Polaris is just where the Earth's axis happens to be pointing right now. But the Earth's axis actually wobbles once every 26,000 years. And most cultures that have developed astronomy, the Mayans and the Chinese and um, various Indian cultures and so on, have had noticed this and noticed that there is a very long cycle in the sky. And in fact, Polaris happens to be the North Star right now. But in another 10,000 years, Vega, which is way on the other side of it's 50 degrees on the other side of the sky, is going to be the North Star. So the North Star actually shifts with time. So the sort of the hour hand, if you will, of a 10,000-year clock is very naturally the position of the Earth's axis. So so this, this particular dial, um, which Alexander Rose here is the artist who designed the actual shapes on this dial, is um, a display of the star pattern. So there's the star field, which anybody would recognize. This is a kind of an astrolabe, which we invented for the clock which actually shows which stars are displayed. So this would be the horizon line. It shows which stars are up. It's sort of like those little toy disks that you look at that show which stars. Except unlike those toy disks, this astrolabe actually changes with that 26,000-year cycle. So this underneath moves around. And in fact, this is an improved astrolabe. So this is a little trick. You should never buy a used astrolabe because they go out of date after about 1,000 years. <laughs> Um, and, and it's hard to get ones that are newer than that. Um, so the, this shows the position of the stars in the sky, and of course this would change over the course of 20, a sidereal day of about, of about a day. And then out on the outside is the sun picture, and that shows the angle of the sun in the sky. And here's to be the horizon lines, which... Of course, during the summer, the sun travels a longer arc, so the horizon actually adjusts on this clock from summer to winter. And then the moon has a certain relationship to the sun in the sky, and it also has a phase, which is displayed on the clock face. So the clock will show you the sun, the moon, and the stars, and then those are the universal things, and then it also shows the calendar dates under our sort of arbitrary Gregorian calendar system, which you know, it gets changed every thousand years or so by a pope. So this is unlikely to be the same system in 10,000 years. But it's connected. So in fact, if you look closely, actually this picture isn't good enough, but this is, it says the year 2000, but actually it says in a five-digit year date, 2000, because of course over 10,000 years you have to solve the year, the Y10K problem. So... <laughs> So this clock is actually Y10K compliant. 
Although I discovered while I was designing it, by the way, that Microsoft Excel is not. Um, so this was the first prototype, and we actually got it built and working in time for the year 2000, so actually hours before the year 2000. Um, we got, in fact, uh, I, we were working on it so hard to get it working, I actually fell asleep right at the end. They woke me up and said, don't worry, it will work. And sure enough, um, Xander had actually run off and machined a p one more, one last piece. We had gotten, we had gotten a shaft wrong. Um, and sure enough, on midnight of the year 2000, the clock struck two and it shifted to 02,000. It was a very satisfying moment. Um, so this clock is now, this is about eight feet tall, and this clock is now in the London Science Museum. And we learned a lot from it, but of course it, it was a trial and there's a lot wrong with it. So we went on to prototype two, we're about finished prototype two, and we're thinking about prototype three. So what I'm gonna talk about tonight is mostly things that are in the, yeah, things that are in the next prototype. So one of the things I'm gonna do is actually Stuart will pass around a piece of prototype one, which you need to be very careful with when you hand it to somebody. The basic pendulum bobs are these three bobs here which turn. And one of the things to make the clock accurate is to make these as dense as possible. So it's made of tungsten. Um, so it's, it's very dense. Don't drop it on your toes. Um, so one of the problems with the mechanical clock, there's a, there's a few problems. One of them is how do you make it accurate over that much time? Because over 10,000 years, there's a lot of time for things to drift. And that pendulum, you can make it the best mechanical object uh, clocks are accurate to about a millisecond a day. But over 10,000 years, that would still put you off by, um, actually, the way that we could do it practically would be multiple milliseconds a day. So it would probably put you off by several days. So, and we probably couldn't real realistically make a clock that lasts this long be so accurate. So the question is, how do you keep it so that it reads the right time after 10,000 years? Now it turns out that the best way to do that would be to reset it to the sun regularly. Um, so the, the essential idea of how we do this is that somehow it needs to read where the sun is using mechanical means so that at noon it can reset itself. But there's a little problem with this, which is that it turns out that the sun isn't exactly overhead at noon. So there's a pattern, and it's demonstrated very nicely by this picture that an amateur astronomer took. Um, sorry, I'm not used to using PowerPoint. So this is a picture that an amateur astronomer took. They clicked once a month just the angle of the sun over their house. And on the summer solstice and the equinox, they left the picture on for longer. But you see, the sun is in a slightly different position every single day. And so sometimes it's a little ahead of the center line, sometimes it's a little behind the center line, and only on the solstices and the equinoxes is it exactly in the center at noon. Now you may recognize that shape. Has anybody seen that shape before? That's the, you know, that funny little racetrack out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean if you look on a globe. That's what this is. That's the, it's called the analemma. 
and it's the equation that you use to correct your sundial. It used to be very important when people use sundials a lot. So that basically, if you're in this month, you expect the sun to be not, you expect to be sort of 15 minutes ahead of time. It's 15, it's overhead 15 minutes before noon, and if you're uh, a few months later, it's 15 minutes after noon. And so there's a correction equation, so somehow the clock has to know about that correction. Different times of year you correct it. But remember that wobble of the earth that I told you about. The bad news is that, again, you, just like you don't buy a used astrolabe, you can't buy a used analemma either. Because the analemmas, as the earth wobbles, they change shape. So every year it's something different, and I actually calculated what it would look like. And so if I plotted every year a different, what the analemma was, it created that sort of messy looking shape. And playing with that, um, using, um, instead of tropical years, using a slightly different definition of years that has to do with the precession of the, of the Earth's major orbit, you can put it in a slightly different time frame and you get something prettier, which is this. And so that tells you every year the shape of, of that analemma shape. And so there's a cam in the clock, and, and this is the small one that's in there. So I've got a picture of it in the prototype, which has that correction in it. So that it knows over the course of 10,000 years, there's an arm that actually moves, you can just see it right off there, moves up that cam. So this is sort of 10,000 years worth of time of that, of that wobble. And so it knows exactly when noon is going to happen. And then the clock will have in it a lens, and this is a prototype that we built of it, which is aimed right there at the center point. So that when the sun actually passes over that center point, it focuses a lens, goes down into a slot just at that moment, heats up a bimetal strip, which clicks something, just like you kind of reset a pocket watch by pushing a button or a, a stopwatch by pushing a button. It sort of pushes a cam. And that information gets added to this cam, adjusted for the right year, and it knows exactly what time it is by, by the sun passing overhead. So that's how it resets itself. Now, it turns out that it, it doesn't need to get that reset very often because the clock's pretty accurate. So if all it needs is a sunny day at noon about once every 10 years... And that actually turns out to be important because if you start thinking over 10,000 years, it turns out that there are periods of many years when volcanoes happen or maybe even uh, people don't know exactly what causes them all, but probably mostly volcanic eruptions. But there are periods of three or four years where the sun doesn't come out sometimes. And so you have to expect those. This first prototype I wasn't entirely happy with. There are things I liked about it. But I wanted to play with a little bit more, displaying more information um, so that you could really reset it to a final level. And one of the directions I started going in in the second prototype is actually displaying the positions of all the planets, which so that you can sort of look up at the sky and tell what date it is and see that the clock is right with a little bit more resolution. And, and so I'll just show you some sketches. The second prototype is not quite finished, and to tell you the truth, there's two major designs that I keep going back and forth between right now, which is really unfortunate because it's supposed to be finished by the end of the year. 
Um, most of it's actually been built. It does have a similar mechanical computer in it that computes the position of the planets. One of the designs is this one, which basically has an orrery there showing the positions of the planets. And the mechanical computer here. Now, this is actually a much bigger clock than that one. So this is almost 12. Actually, this one's, this one's about uh, 10 feet tall, actually. Um, and that is a kind of orrery that's a model of the solar system that shows the visible planets. The second design, which is the one I'm leaning toward now, is this one, which is, again, it's a simple orrery design. But this is sort of illustrates the kind of things that I wrestle with because to me, actually, this design is kind of more interesting. This design is actually more beautiful, but in a certain sense, more familiar. And so one of the questions I wrestle with is, do I want to go with something sort of familiar that people can hold in their heads, or do I want to go with something kind of weird that they've never seen before? And um, one nice thing, the sort of reasons why this is a kind of classical design, why you've sort of seen it in globes and kind of 18th century orries and things like that, things very, it looks familiar. It also sort of looks familiar because it's kind of a head on a body, and a clock is kind of a little homunculus, a kind of little abstract person that has its little sense of time and its heartbeat and its face and its hands, and it's sort of a little kind of pre-industrial AI or something. And, and that's part of the charm of a clock, and this kind of reminds you of that a little bit. So the kind of thing that I'm wrestling with right now is kind of design things like that, of what, what do you actually want the clock to say. Uh, this it lets me give you kind of the questions that I'm wrestling with, you know, as of today. You know, these are sort of bothering me that I don't have good answers to, but then one of them is what I'm talking about there is how much you sort of want to appeal to our sort of classical ideas about what a clock should look like. Um, another one that's very interesting is symmetry versus asymmetry. Things get much more interesting as you start making them more asymmetrical, but on the other hand, things give you more of a sense of peace if they're more symmetrical and sort of a sense of steadiness and solidity. So going back and forth between those, these are very symmetrical designs. Um, horizontal versus vertical, I find that as I design the clock, it keeps getting more and more vertical. And you know, I can sort of see why monuments all end up being towers. It's probably a guy kind of thing. But it always seems to me like the clock ought to be more horizontal somehow. So I'm, finding I'm always kind of trying to push it down and spread it out, but it keeps popping up. <laughs> um, how big should it be? I, I don't know. I mean, these prototypes, that last prototype, that, the bigger one is about 12 feet tall. But I think eventually the clock probably wants to be bigger than that. But I'm not sure, really how large it should be. It should be large. I don't think I want it to intimidate people because it's, I'd like people to sort of feel peaceful about it, but it sort of has to be big enough to be interesting and hold, you know, hold an important place in, in their mind. So again, I, I wrestle back and forth between sometimes I think of the clock as hundreds of feet tall and sometimes I think of it just being a little bit larger than a person. Um, another one, you know, how do you physically wind it? Is it a crank? Is it a, you know, um, Doug Carlson suggested an elevator that you get in and it, it lets you down over a period of weeks while you think about it. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of practical problems. Do we put it underground? Do we 
put in a case, things like that. Um, and how do actually the clock escapement works? There's a tremendous amount of design detail that goes into that little thing that ticks and really getting that right so it will last over 10,000 years. I'm not even sure that the mechanical computer is the right way to do it. I originally thought that because the normal way of computing gear ratios isn't accurate enough to work over 10,000 years. But it turns out if you use some modern mathematics that was developed for cryptography, you can actually do, using lattice methods, you can actually do much better gear calculations and come up with much more compact gear designs that, in fact, might, might work. So I'm actually beginning to shift maybe away from the mechanical computer and going to, to something simpler there. What kind of time units to display? Um, how does, it would be nice if the clock somehow registered you, that you could somehow leave your mark or something like that. And that's a puzzle that's there. So there are kinds of things I'm still thinking about and I don't have good answers to. One of the things that I have gotten a good answer to recently, um, that if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would say I have no idea where we're going to put it. But um, other members of the Long Now Foundation have been working very hard on that problem. And over the last few years, um, we've just, we have found actually through one of our board members that was the head of the National Park Service, a fantastic site that I'm very excited about, which is in eastern Nevada. And this is really pretty much as much in, it's probably the, literally the middle of nowhere for the United States. It's equidistant from Salt Lake City, Reno, and, and Las Vegas. It's 300, over 300 miles away from each of those. Uh, those, are the, those are the closest cities. And it is a beautiful um, 11,000 foot high limestone mountain sitting in a kind of private island in the middle of a national park. So we actually own a private space with a mountain on it that's surrounded by a national park. And this mountain is covered with these fantastic trees, which are, um, this kind of tree is the oldest living creature on earth. These are bristlecone pine trees. And these trees are known to live for at least 5,000 years. They're 5,000 year old trees in, on the mountain. And in fact, they're pieces of wood. We've had people study the mountain going up there recently, and they're pieces of wood that are 10,000 years old sitting on the mountain. So if a piece of wood can last for 10,000 years, I think we can build a clock that can last for 10,000 years. That's sort of how stable this is. Excuse me? Yeah. Well, the, the trees are kind of a clock, of course. And um, I, I, so, you, you know, somehow it seems like the right kind of a mountain and it seems like the right kind of place. And just to give you another sort of measure of that this is the right kind of place, and there, you can see the mountain behind it. And the mountain, being limestone, has nice caves and it has some mile-long tunnels in it and things like that. It's quite, this is a piece of it. And come up and look at it. It's quite beautiful rock. And it's also quite wonderfully isolated away from the changes of civilization. So this is actually a map. This is a satellite map of skylight, sort of leaking out from civilization. And so, for instance, this is Los Angeles down there. There's San Francisco up there. There's Las Vegas. There's Salt Lake City up there. And you notice this big black hole right there with no light leaking up. That's where the mountain is right in the middle of that hole. 
So in fact, when you go out there, and we do as often as possible, uh, you really get a different sense of how important the stars are. And you, know, you see the Milky Way, you see Andromeda sitting floating out there with your naked eyes. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. And really get a sense of the kind of the bigness of the universe. Um, and, and it doesn't hurt that even the base of the mountain is at 6,000 feet. So it's a mile-high mountain. So it seems like a pretty perfect place to put the clock. So that's a, a question that I think has been recently answered um, that we're pretty excited about. And exactly where we're putting it on the mountain, whether we put it in the mountain or on the mountain, is something we're still exploring, and we're having a wonderful time climbing around the mountain and exploring it and discovering things about it. In fact, we need volunteers to help do a gravity survey of the mountain to look find a, for, we're looking for natural caves in the mountain right now. So that's, that's some, some good recent progress. The, the mountain, I think, suggests a question. The existence of the mountain starts as we're picking the space. It sort of raises the question of designing the clock is not really just designing the object, but it's designing the whole experience of visiting the clock. Because one of the great things about the mountain is it's a day away from any... It's really it's a commitment to go there. You can't just casually go there. So you really have to want to. It has to be kind of a quest to, to want to go there. And that's something that I really like about it and have always wanted to put the clock in a place that was very hard to get to for that reason. Because remember, the whole point of the clock is to sort of cause some change in your way of thinking about the world, or at least give you an excuse to change your way of thinking about the world if you want to. And if you don't want to, I don't know why you would visit the clock, to tell you the truth. Um, and so it's interesting to think about what causes an experience to be an experience that can kind of change your way of thinking about something or change you, what's a, a transformative experience. And it turns out that this topic has been looked at by, from a lot of different angles. It's been looked at by anthropologists studying... Sorry. If, by the way, if I start fading in sound, somebody wave hands... But um, it's been studied by anthropologists that are studying religions and religious rituals. It's been studied by marketing people who are trying to design better Starbucks. Um, it's, been, it's been studied um, by um, basically all kinds of, for instance, theme park designers. I learned a lot about it at Disney, thinking about how you design a theme park, how do you make an experience. And I've sort of synthesized... Things I've read from each of those, some of the things I learned designing theme parks at Disney, some of the, the um, uh, things that I've sort of read about what makes, you know, in, in history, sort of what makes things work. And sort of synthesize a set of rules, which I'll show you, which, you know, this is, there's nothing magic about this stuff, but in order for something to be an interesting experience for someone, it, also, it has to start out, they have to, they have to want to do something. They have to want to go visit the clock for some reason or go see the Taj Mahal or visit the pyramids. Or, and so they have some picture in their mind of what it is they're going to accomplish. So whatever it is, it has to have a picture associated with it. So the reason that everybody wants to visit the Taj Mahal but nobody wants to visit Ellora Caves in India is not because the Taj Mahal is more interesting than Ellora Caves. In fact, it's not, but because there's a very clear sort of postcard of everybody knows what it would be like to visit the Taj Mahal. And so you can sort of hold it in your mind. 
And so it's very important that whatever it is has that kind of iconic quality that you can kind of hold it in your mind, that you sort of know what, what to expect. And then you have to, it has to be important enough that there's a clear point at which you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going there, I'm, I'm making the trip, I'm making the commitment to do it. And so it's a really great thing that it's, I mean, if it's, if it's that far away, if it's a day's travel, there's no doubt you're not just running into this because you walked by it. You've really decided to go there. That's a very important aspect of it. And then once you get there, say, to the base of the mountain, in the case of the clock, you have to have something that's sort of leading you forward, some glimpse of something that makes you want to go up there, makes you go through it, makes you want to go into the temple or whatever, and sort of pulls you forward. Um, and in, in, in theme parks, we used to call this the weenie. And so the, the, the castle's off in the background, and you sort of want to go in and head toward the castle or something. It's something that sort of pulls you forward, like the weenie in front of the dog. Um, and then it turns out good experiences, there's something weird that happens, because you have to leave behind your old way of thinking. And you sort of have to go through this period of confusion, this sort of trial. So... I mean, there's an analogy in this in, in a great story. As if you've, any of you have read Joseph Campbell, there's this sort of period of the perils, the labyrinth, the challenges. That you, there has to be a period of confusion where you're not sure if you should have embarked on this, that this, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, where it gets you sort of frightened enough to leave behind your old ideas and get concentrated on the present. And then you somehow have to achieve the the thing that you went there, you arrive at the Taj Mahal, you see yourself smile in front of the postcard or whatever. But then a great experience has something more than that. Because that's only the apparent payoff. So a great experience, there's a kind of secret payoff behind it. There's something else that only the people that experience it can do it. And then finally, there's one more step of bringing you back to the world. So just to give you an idea, if you take a transformative experience, a, a ritual that we're all familiar with, which is a wedding, I'm saying this because I have several friends in the audience that have just gotten engaged. Um, the goal is you sort of imagine maritable, marital bliss. You sort of see yourself. Uh, everybody has the picture of the bride and groom sort of at the end of the aisle. Um, everybody sort of knows what it would like to be like to get married. It's easy to conjure up a picture of that. And then the commitment is, of course, the proposal. So there's some point at which you decide to get married. Um, the glimpse can be a lot of different things, and we needn't get into that, but in the ceremony itself, part of the glimpse is the groom standing at the end of the aisle, and there's a long aisle that literally kind of draws you down. Uh, It draws you down the aisle. The labyrinth is, say, the bachelor party beforehand. It's a sort of the moment of craziness where you're sort of neither here nor there. You're, You're in what anthropologists call the liminal zone. You're not quite in the old life, but you're not in the new life yet. So you're doing something weird that sort of marks that transition. Um, The apparent payoff is you may kiss the bride. Um, The secret payoff is the consummation. (laughs) And then the return is the honeymoon. And if if you look at any good ritual, it sort of has all of those elements. It has to have all of those elements to really work. And so for the clock, I think these elements would be the goal has to be you have to have that picture in your head, something like this, or it has to be something better than that, I think. It has to be this sort of icon of imagine what it would be like to visit the clock. And 
Some, there has to be some reason. There has to be a story about it. You have to understand why you are and so on. The commitment is, of course, the trip out there. You, you, you have to decide to go on a long trip. The glimpse, I think, the way that it will work with the clock, is so if I go back to the picture of that mountain, when you arrive at the base of the mountain, all of a sudden you find you're at the bottom of this mile-high mountain. And you see up at the top maybe just a little glint of a structure there, just enough to kind of say, well, I'm... I could see if I just got up there, I would be there. But then the labyrinth would somehow be the trip up there. So it would be the trail up. It's a pretty long hike. It's a pretty tough hike up there. It really is a mile of vertical ascent. It might even be a, literally a labyrinth into the tunnel, through the tunnel. Xander um, discovered this spring, actually, a beautiful... Um, there's actually... Up the cliff face, there's almost a natural stairway going up that cliff face. So it looks like you're sort of going up to this 1,000-foot cliff face, but there's actually a way you can walk up to the very top. And so that labyrinth, I think, is the trip up there, maybe literally getting lost inside the mountain, getting confused, getting a little, how did I get myself into this? Why am I doing this? And of course, being at 11,000 feet and deprived of oxygen helps with that experience. <laughs> and then... Once you get up, you find yourself in front of the clock. You see the clock, you, you wind the clock, you see it tick, you feel like you've been there, you snap the photo shot in front of it. But then, then comes the secret payoff, and it's the sound of the clock. And this is the thing that, Brian was, that I worked with Brian on, is the sound of the, the sequence of bells. And so when you get up there, imagine you're up on top of the mountain having spent this long, exhausting climb up there after the day up. And you're standing in the middle of these 5,000-year-old bristlecone pine trees. And you get to hear a sequence of bells that has never been heard before because it's generated by the clock for that moment, uniquely for that, for that day. You're the first person that ever heard that. No one will ever hear it again. No one will ever hear that sequence again. And I think at that point then you're ready to think differently. And I know because I've done enough of this myself. I've climbed that mountain. I've been up there with those trees. And by the time there, you sort of, you get in a different sense of perspective. You start thinking about things differently. And you start, it becomes very easy to believe that sort of everything that you were worried about in your life is just kind of a passing, flitting things. And these trees that have been there for 5,000 years really don't care much about what happened in the last hundred years that so that you've been around and probably don't care much what happens in the next hundred years. And you start to get a really different sense of what the scope of the world is like and what the scope of time is like. And you're ready for that nice walk back, that slow walk back and that day of decompression going back to civilization. And at the end of it, I, I, I feel different and I think about things differently. And that, to me, makes the whole project worthwhile because it's, a, it's permission to do the thing that I was missing in the first place, which is to stretch out that sense of the future, to sort of give you room to imagine and dream and imagine what things could be like in thousands of years and imagine, really, what, what forces are shaping the world and what things you do really make a difference and don't make a difference and what really matters and doesn't matter. So this is, this is the thing that the clock does for me. 
And I can imagine that if we actually build it, it's a place where people who want that feeling can do it for them too. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm doing it. And I'll stop right there for questions. Uh, we have uh, a lot of questions. They're kind of switching back and forth between technical questions and much more metaphysical questions. But uh, Charles, Charles here? Oh. I can imagine the clock becoming a popular place to visit. Have you thought about protecting it from becoming too popular? Can it be protected from civilization? So I, I think putting it that far away from any place is, is actually a big step. Because it actually is kind of, you, know, you have to be pretty serious about it to even get there. So it's not the kind of a thing where I think a casual vandal would, would go to. But that doesn't in itself protect it. And over the long run, you can't design something that protects itself. And, you know, the pyramids are an example of that folly. So the pyramids were designed to be impenetrable in fact, within a generation, they were penetrated and looted. And so, in some sense, the ultimate protection about something has to be that people care about it. And so, I've thought a lot about how do you make the clock that it's not susceptible to sort of casual damage to people. How do you make the approach so that, for instance, the trees don't get hurt by a lot of people visiting it. That's part of the underground approach and things like that. So, we've tried to think of ways that it sort of scales with more people. But one of the nice things is that as more people go to visit it, it sort of means by definition that more people are caring about it. So you have more forces on your side to protect it, too. So the trick is maybe to have something that scales well. Because I actually don't think for a while the big problem, I mean, I don't think that lots and lots of people are going to make the commitment to go out and visit it initially. And in fact, things like this only become important over time. So maybe a few centuries from now, there might be a lot of people visiting it. But over the few, first few hundred years, I bet we don't have to worry too much. That's my guess. But if we do, we've got other friends that are worrying about it, too. So. Uh, we've had a few, several questions along this theme, and I'll, I'll combine both uh, Tim White's and George Canciani's question. Forgive my pronunciation. Um, Tim White uh, notices that in this room it's about 80% male and uh, he asks, is, will this interest change? And, the, uh, and George brought up, what would the 10,000-year clock look like if it were designs, designed by a woman's form factor and sensibilities? Well, I, first of all, I'm, I'm sure it would be different if it was designed by anybody different. <laughs> um, and presumably the more different than me they were, the more different it would look in, in whatever dimensions. But yeah, it, is, it is actually interesting. I don't, I, I mean, I think it's a true observation. Um, why is it that, you know, this is appealing? I mean, I could, I could bullshit about it, but I probably don't know any more about it than anybody else in the audience. But it's an interesting observation. Uh, Mark Lavoie from Stanford. Um, I thought the clock was supposed to be accompanied by a library. 
indeed. Um, one of the first conversations I had with Stuart about the clock is, I said, you know, Stuart, I, what worries me about the design of the clock is something's kind of missing. Because it's only, there's really two kinds of time. There's, mechan- there's Newtonian time, which is reversal. Everything was the same forward and backwards. And, and the clock, it's very regular and... It doesn't, in some sense, it doesn't go anywhere. The clock, a clock running backwards would look kind of right as much as a clock running forwards. Um, but then there's also information time, like evolution, um, like people learning. And obviously, that's something very different forward and backwards. That's those thermodynamics. And one of the great mysteries of the universe is actually how, one of, how information time can be made out of Newtonian time, because Newtonian time seems to have very different properties. And somehow the clock is only about that kind of mechanical Newtonian time. And somehow it needs an aspect to it that's more about information time. And Stuart said almost immediately, oh, you mean a library. And as soon as he said that, he realized, yeah, and a library is, of course, a kind of a clock of accumulating information. And it's, it's, it's changing. And, and so that's always been, in some sense, the other face of the clock. And so another part of Long Now has focused on, you know, how do you preserve information over a long period of time? How do you accumulate information? How do you make sense of information that's preserved? And things like the Rosetta Project. Of, you know, how do you preserve the languages in which information is expressed and so on? So there has been a whole other side to it. And, I, I, I puzzle a lot about what the relationship, and I, I probably puzzle too much. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll show you something that's kind of confession about this. I started trying to draw the relationship of the clock in the library. <laughs> and as soon as I sort of got that network and it started coming out symmetric, I realized that I was going off the deep end and stopped. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the uh, more technical clock questions from uh, Glenn Kramer. Does mechanical wear affect the clock's accuracy over time, and if so, how do you model it and compensate? So, mechanical wear is an issue, but that's one of the reasons that sort of determines the size of the clock, is that mechanical wear is, of course, a surface effect. So the bigger you make the clock, the less surface it has per volume. And so the less important that wear issues become. Of course, you have to be careful about material. And the clock is also very slow. So even this prototype ticks once a minute. And I think the eventual clock will be even slower. So ticking once a minute, if you count the number of ticks in 10,000 years, it's only the same as the number of ticks that a, a wristwatch does in 100 years. So it's actually not as much wear as you might, as you might think. So making it slow and making it big are basically the two ways to avoid that. But it's, it's not to say it's not a problem, but I think it's a solvable problem. From uh, John Cornwell, we have a question about the disciplines. Uh, can you list the disciplines and fields of expertise tapped for this project, geology, history, metallurgy, etc.? Did any of the required expertise surprise you? For example, did you become surprised that you needed sociology? Yeah, actually, that has been, for me, one of the greatest things about the project, is I've gotten to learn so much about so many different areas that I never had a reason to connect to, kind of obscure, like Mayan calendar systems, 
or gravity fluctuations or groundwater motion or you know, um, the, growth of bristlecone, uh, the growth patterns of bristlecone pine trees and finding the connections between these areas. I mean, for example, do you, one of the things, one of the stories that I found out that was very interesting is how do geologists know what where, weight, where rates on rocks are? How do you know that a cliff erodes at so many inches per century? And it turns out that the way you do it is these bristlecone pine trees. You, they live, when they live near it, you can sort of see where their roots grew a few thousand years ago, and you can see how far back the rock eroded, how far down the rock eroded uh, during that period. And so you start seeing these connections in sort of long-term thinking, or you start realizing the I don't know, connection between, for instance, the astronomy and anthropology. Here's another sort of weird connection is... I found this, that the, the way that we actually, there's an interesting thing that you have to compensate for. Another thing that CAM compensates for is that the Earth's rotation is actually slowing down due to tidal effects. So you have to build into the CAM the fact that days are getting longer by about a second a century. And it actually matters over the life. Well, how do we know that? Well, it turns out the way we know that is the Mayans kept very accurate records of eclipses. And when the Spaniards were in there burning the Mayan books, they forgot to burn seven books. And one of them happened to be a book about eclipses. So one of the seven remaining Mayan books we have actually has a record of exactly when eclipses happen, according to the Mayan calendar system. And then that raises the question, well, how do we know what the Mayan calendar system is, and that brings down a whole other set of stories. But So one of the wonderful things is not only finding sort of all of these things like material science and geology and anthropology and so on, but sort of finding what seems to be obscure corners of them that start connecting up when you look on these time things. Uh, we have a question from, uh, from For John. For instance, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't know. So uh, Glenn asked a question about uh, friction and wear. I didn't even know there was a science called tribology. And it turns out there's a whole set of people that just study wear. And so there's there's been whole fields that I didn't even know existed that I've gotten to learn about. We have a question from Josh. could the clock simply be protected by people building more like it? How do you feel about cheap copies? Oh, I'm all for them. In fact, <laughs> to tell you the truth, I think cheap copies are probably the best chance of it actually lasting. Uh, and it turns out that the, really there's only two ways that things really survive over the long run. One of them is that they're copied. That's probably the best way. The other one is they get lost. And actually, it turns out that being copied a lot is a good way to get lost. So, um, so I think actually, in terms of actually surviving for 10,000 years, that's, that's really one of the best bets for the clock. And one of the reasons I'd like to make it transparent and evolve, make it transparent and evolvable and so on, so that it is copyable. And I would hope, like many copies, it would be improved in the copying and that people would actually come up with better so that it would actually evolve through the copies, and the copies would get better. 
And, and a lot of, there have been a lot of great things. There are examples of like um, the temple in Judaism, where in some sense the idea of the temple has survived, even though the temple was destroyed because it was copied and it sort of re- replicated. In some sense, it became more important to people in its destruction in some sense. So, in, in fact, you know, when I was first starting this, my friend Teller of Penn and Teller actually suggested that the, what, what I should really do is not make the clock at all, but make a documentary film about the making and the hiding of the clock. <laughs> that way no one can ever find it, right? That's the... A uh, question from Eric Thomas, and uh, this actually goes to the last question as well. As, um, as Danny was saying, we do encourage cheap copies. All the, all the plans for every single part in this clock are available for free download off of our site now. Um, you're welcome to make your own. Um, and and Tom- some people have, by the way. Some people have started. Yeah, yes, people, some people have started. Yeah. Uh, Eric Thomas asks, will the daily variations of, of Eno Bell tunes be available for downloading? You know, that's another place where we're looking for a volunteer because they, they, that, the bells there, the bells, so I, I tell a little bit, it gives me an excuse to tell a little bit about, more of the story about the bells, which is that um, when I was asking Brian, you know, what does the clock sound like, Brian noticed this thing, which was that the number of days in 10,000 years is almost exactly equal to the number of permutations of 10 things. So if you had 10 bells and you put them in a different order every day, then it lasts for about 10,000 years. It takes somebody like Brian to notice this. But. And so he said, you know, so, so with that observation, um, I designed a, a mechanism, an algorithm for generating all permutations and a mechanism that would do that. And so what this is, is, is Brian's actually taken that algorithm and with the synthesizer, synthesized, studying lots of different kinds of bells. And in fact, that CD that's out there is his study of the different bell sounds and plays out the algorithm for, you know, in the year 7,000, he plays it out for a year or something, just make sure it still keeps sounding good. Um, of course, we haven't listened to the whole thing yet. <laughs> There might be some boring little runs of 100 years or so. But, um, so, you know, one of the things that has actually been requested several times, and we're looking for somebody to do, is to make a version of this, um, this algorithm that you know, can run, every, people can run on their personal computer or something. And, um, so if anybody wants to volunteer, if some programmer out there uh, wants to volunteer for long, uh, wants to volunteer for something for long now, that would, that would be a great project. But we don't have one right now. We have a question from an anonymous coward. Will the parts in the digital computer need to be changed within the 10,000 years? And how are you planning for it? So the idea is, and, and, and this is sort of a general philosophy about the clock, of... I, what I'd like to do is design it so that as far as I know, everything will last for 10,000 years. On the other hand, I don't have the hubris to believe that I get it right. So anybody who makes a statement, like, you know, the, the, 
there was bound to be mistakes. There are bound to be stuff that happens that I didn't imagine. And so the saving grace in the long run has to be that it's sort of open source, self-documenting. You can kind of look at it and see what it's supposed to do or how it's supposed to work, and there's nothing too mysterious about the materials and the shapes and things like that. So it's not designed to wear out. It's not designed to break. It should, in principle, last for 10,000 years, but the answer is it probably won't. There's probably some mistake in there, and somebody will have to probably care about it enough to actually fix it, as happens with any machine that lasts. Um, so the answer is I don't know, but you know, probably it'll break, probably it'll have to fix it, and it's designed so that people could do that. I have a uh, last question here from Jacob Cohn. Is this meant to be viewed only by humans? And uh, I know we have some people from SETI here tonight, so that might be... That's a really good question. I mean, um, I've only thought about humans because everybody I know is a human. (laughs) I, I have thought a little bit about what somebody would make of humans if they found this. And that's a little bit weird to think about um, because they might think we had some really good reason for building this and it would be very hard to figure out what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I guess the, the thing that I think about is this is one of these cases where thinking about a 10,000 year clock makes something real that becomes very abstract. Because what are humans 10,000 years from now? I mean, what are these? Even if they're descended from us, are they AIs? Are they biologically organized? And you start thinking about what does being human mean in 10,000 years? It could mean something very different than what we mean today. And so an idea like that, that maybe before I might have thought of kind of abstractly as sort of science fiction, all of a sudden becomes a real kind of design parameter. You know, will the people that are looking at this be... 10 feet tall, or will they be 6 inches, or will they be AIs, you know, or looking at this through electronically amplified, or, you know, some, will they be down on the quantum level, and because we can think so much faster that way, and so it starts stretching your idea of even what it means to be human when you really start thinking of of 10,000 years, and I suspect in many senses we probably wouldn't even recognize them. So yeah, in that sense, I have thought about at least something different than us looking at them. I'll stop right there. Thank Thank you you. very much. Thank you. There's books in the lobby. Any money you leave in the box will go straight into the clock. See you next month. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.